0: Uh, but we're gonna continue in Joshua this morning. We're, we're nearing the end. Last week, Pastor Mario preached through Joshua 21. We looked at God's eternal, enduring faithfulness. And that brings us to Joshua 22. And Joshua 22 is a beautifully encouraging chapter. Right? We've looked at the unfortunate reality that at times in this book, the people of Israel, the leadership, they don't get it right. They They really kind of miss opportunities. They don't seek counsel from the Lord. They move forward in their own strength. But I think Joshua 22 is just an incredible picture of really at every step of the way the people of Israel get it right and what they're prepared to do, but what they do first and their actions with one another and all of it. So I'm excited to look at Joshua 22 this morning. Uh, If you will, before before we dive in, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you for your holiness, that there is none like you. And so, Lord, in this time, remind us of these things as we open your word, that you are holy and your word is holy and it deserves our full heart. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you in this as we continue to worship by coming before you and asking that you teach us, that you lead us. Thank you for what you've given to us to, to take us deeper. We want to know you more. We want to make you known. And we trust you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to set up real quick background because we're going to begin in verse 10. So if you remember back, let's go back to the beginning of this sermon series. This started, I think it's chapter 3, and we look at two and a half tribes of Israel receive their inheritance on this side of the Jordan River. If you remember that sermon where two and a half tribes receive their inheritance on this side of the Jordan River, but the rest of the people have to cross the Jordan to receive their inheritance over here. And part of the tribes receiving their inheritance here was that they would continue with the rest of the Israelites and fight with them and support them and aid them. And we unpacked that and looked at that. And so when we come to 22, these two and a half tribes, they've spent seven years doing just that. And so 22 verses 1 through 9, Joshua, before all the people, acknowledges, you've fulfilled your oath, you've done this, you said that you would fight with us, that you would fight for us, it's what you've done, now you're released, go back to your home, go back to your territory, you know, blessings, follow God, obey his commands, you see a revisitation of the themes we've looked at at Joshua, but that's the first nine verses, so the two and a half tribes set back from the rest of the people to go to their inheritance, their land, and then we pick up in verse 10 when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And that's such an interesting verse that's in there. So you've got, hey, you fulfilled your oath, you fought for us, you did everything that you said you were going to do. Joshua says, obey the Lord, follow his commandments, go back to your inheritance. They set out to do so. When they get there, they build an altar. And it says an imposing altar, a huge altar. This is not like a little tiny campfire in your backyard. This is massive. And then it says, when the people of Israel, when the rest of the people of Israel heard of it, they gathered to make war against them. Why? Well, for this, remember, context, context, context. So we have to go back, let's go back to Leviticus. Let's look at what God said, because what was the altar? What was the altar? The altar was the seat of worship. It was where the people brought their sacrifices to acknowledge their sin before the Lord, to seek his forgiveness, to praise him. So the altar was the place of worship for the people of Israel. And what did God say about this? If we go back to Leviticus, we see, but before we do, I wanna point to your attention because the people of Israel in their response to this, they give us an indication of what's going on here. So they're not just making war arbitrarily. This is not a rash, impulsive reaction to the altar. For this, we jump down to verse 16. They send a delegation to the tribe of Gad, Reuben, and half-tribe of Manasseh. And verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which we even yet have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Pay attention to that, where the Lord's tabernacle stands. And take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. There were details in that response that point us back to Leviticus, that point us back to earlier chapters in Joshua, that realize why this is such a big deal that the people take so seriously. See, in Leviticus 17, 8-9, as God is setting forth the patterns, the established holy patterns of worship, he says, And you shall say to them, Anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. When God was establishing the holiness of worship, he said, this is the tabernacle, this is the altar that is consecrated for my sake, for my name, for holiness. If you break this, you're cut off from the people. There are consequences to it. And then why do they reference Achan? What did we look at in the story of Achan as we worked through Joshua? We looked at God said, hey, the things in Jericho, they are devoted for destruction. They are devoted for my holiness. They are set apart from you. You are not to claim the things that are set aside for me. Achan did it, he desecrated what was consecrated and that brought sin out on the people or that that brought sin to the people and it brought consequence on the people, the breaking of God's consecration. You have the same pattern potentially here. The rest of the tribes of Israel see the behavior of these two and a half tribes and they see, oh no, is this that same pattern of seeing what God has consecrated as holy and breaking that pattern. So they are very concerned about this. Why? Not for their own sake. I mean, make no mistake, there's there's a reality that our sin affects others. We looked at that with Achan. We looked at Peor that our sin affects others. And the people of Israel acknowledge this, but the primary cause of concern here, what do they say? They say, why are you breaching this faith against the God of Israel? Why are you rebelling against the Lord? Don't take for yourselves what is holy for God and make it your own. Come into God's land, worship at God's tabernacle. Their concern is for the holiness of the Lord, the sanctity of worship. Francis Schaeffer writing about it summarized it at this. They thought the holiness of God was being threatened. So these men said, the holiness of God demands no compromise. And then Francis Schaeffer goes on to say, I would to God that the church of the 20th century would learn this lesson. The holiness of the God who exists demands that there be no compromise in the area of truth. And if Francis Schaeffer could say that about the church of the 20th century, the 1900s, man, I got to imagine he could say that about the church of the 21st century that there can be no compromise in the area of truth when it comes to the holiness of God. And I want to use, because here's the thing, we hear a lot about unity, and make no mistake, unity is a beautiful thing, we're going to look at it. But in order to have real unity that means something, you need truth. Double trouble twins up here. A perfect A perfect, my dad and his twin brother are here, so I get to have a little fun with them, because growing up a pastor's kid, pastors have kids just so they have a sermon illustration. Like, that was my lesson growing up. A perfect baseball season ends in what team winning the World Series? Pittsburgh Pirates. Joe, a perfect baseball season ends in what team winning the World Series? Cleveland Indians. Where's Troy? Oh, he's back in the kids' wing. Troy would tell you that a perfect baseball season ends exactly the way that this baseball season ended with the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series. Could you say that these two and Joe and Troy are united in their baseball fandom? No. Because they want a different purpose. They want a different outcome. They believe in different things. And that scene, you know, that's ha-ha, fun baseball. But now let's take this to a more serious nature. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of my life? What is the meaning of everything? Where does truth come from? Who defines right and wrong? Well, if I disagree with you on these things, then you and I can't be united. If I say there are multiple ways to heaven and you say there's one way to heaven, Jesus, we can't say that we're united in our eternal opinion. We're not united in our definition of truth. And make no mistake, what have we said about Scripture that everything points to Jesus we did that the sermon where we went through every book of the Bible and it all points to Jesus so as you look at this idea of disunity what the people were prepared to divide over they were prepared to divide over the sanctity of truth and that's where we need to be because when you look at Scripture you see that apart from truth there is no real unity consider these verses Hebrews 4 2 for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Let's jump to Ephesians, talking about the church in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And He, God, Jesus, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity. when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What did it say that unity is the unity of the knowledge of Jesus? You remove Jesus, you remove the truth of Christ, and unity is nothing more than a facade. It's a sham that may last for a little bit, right? They could at least be united in saying, "Hey, we're happy for the baseball season to be here." But the moment the pirates and the Indians meet and the Indians beat the pirates and eliminate them, or the pirates be more likely, the pirates beat the Indians and eliminate them, they're no longer united. So their unity, which was not centered in a truth of purpose, in a unity of heart, in a unity of what really is true, falls apart. We see this in scripture. Consider John 17. When you think about this idea of unity, especially in modern conversations in the evangelical church across America, Everybody goes to John 17. It's a beautiful prayer. It's the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer of unity that Jesus gives for his apostles. But what does he say in that prayer of unity? John 17, 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Sanctification being set apart from sin for the holiness of God requires truth. And, side note, what happens before Jesus prays this prayer of unity? Back up to John 13 21 through 30, Jesus dismisses Judas from the group. Jesus had three years to spend with this group. I don't think it's insignificant that he didn't pray for this prayer of unity and sanctification until Judas had departed the group. If we don't have truth, we don't have real unity. And so these people of Israel are faced with this, okay, we have now been divided by what is true worship, what is right and proper holy worship. That's worth dividing over because in order to be unified, we've got to be unified in truth. And make no mistake, lest you think I'm belaboring this, lest we think that, well, is it really that big of a deal? Let's look at how God responds to when his people aren't willing to divide over truth. Consider what God says about a lack of truth within his own people, within the church. Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31, God speaking. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. God is not pleased with the leadership of his people because they've abandoned the truth of who he is and what he has called them to do. But then he goes on to say, so he's not pleased with the leaders. He said, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? God rebukes his people for tolerating, not just tolerating, but accepting and being pleased with false teachers and unholy leaders. God rebukes his people for saying, he says, my people love to have it. So this is a rebuke on the people of Israel. This is God the Father in Jeremiah. Then you go to Revelation. We have Jesus, the Son, the Messiah. Revelation 2, 18 through 23. God the Father rebukes his people for tolerating untruth in their midst. Jesus rebukes the church for tolerating untruth in its midst. Romans 16, 17 through 18, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Titus 1, 7 through 11, talking again about the church, about the leadership of the church. Titus 1, starting in verse 7, talking about the elders, the pastors, the overseers. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that. Remember, we talked when you see so that, the next idea is going to tell you why the preceding idea was so vital. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He's writing about the church and he says, look, the leaders need to be prepared to rebuke and silence The untruthful voices within the church for any men who were at the Bible study on Tuesday why did Paul oppose Peter what did it say Galatians chapter 2 when I got to Antioch and when I saw that his behavior was what not in line not according to the truth of the gospel I stood and opposed him see without truth there can't be real unity And if we're unwilling to confront untruth, if we're unwilling to confront heresy, then look at the rebukes laid out in Scripture and realize that that's on us today if we're willing to compromise truth just so that people think we get along and are friends. I mean, this is laid out plainly. But you see a beautiful thing happen in Joshua. Like I said at the start, I think Joshua 22 provides us a great picture of the people of Israel responding to this all the way. See, they see potentially untruth. They see the people engaged. So the perception is your behavior has desecrated the holiness of worship that God set forth. So it says they armed themselves and they prepared themselves for war. They are fully ready to divide over this untruth or this lack of of unifying truth. But what do they do first they send a delegation they send leaders to the people and the potential problem they say hey before we are ready to go to war we are armed and ready to divide over this but first go talk to them so the leaders go to the people we're going to look at this in more i thought we were maybe going to get through 22 in one week and then my outline was like seven pages long and i was like i don't think anybody's feeling a two-hour sermon so we're going to do 22 in two weeks. So next week, we're going to look more in-depth at the relationship between the people and the leadership delegation, the delegation and the two and a half tribes. So we're, we're going to, there are some verses that we're going to skip over here. Make no mistake, we're going to go into depth on them next week. But spoiler alert, the, the large majority, they send the delegation to the tribes in potential heretical worship. Leadership says, hey, this is the perception. And they give them a chance to respond. And they listen. And when they listen, they realize... Oh, okay, no. Your hearts are in the right place. Your desire is for proper and holy worship. You're fully aware of the standards that God has set forth. Okay, cool. And then it finishes with the chapter, finishes with this beautiful verse where it says, and all the people rejoiced and remained united. So it's it's an incredible picture of how to handle this. But what do we see the people demonstrate in their response to the potential problem? We see them demonstrate discernment. And this is a word that we use a lot, but I want to make sure we really understand biblical discernment with this idea of what divides us, what unites us. So the Hebrew word for discernment can be translated as discernment, understanding, skill. And what it means is to make distinction. It means to identify two separate things. Look at these verses. This is Deuteronomy 113. Choose for your tribes wise understanding. There's that Hebrew word. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And when you go on to read the rest of Deuteronomy 1, you realize he's talking about, Moses is talking about, he's going to appoint people to judge disputes among the people. To look at two options who are wise and discerning. These men are wise and discerning, they have understanding. They will look at two options that are distinct, and they will make a wise call between the two. Then you have 1 Kings 3, 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. One of the biblical scholars writing about, uh, J. Adams, writing about discernment, this Hebrew word says it's related to the noun bayin, which means interval or space, and the preposition ben, which means between. So in essence, this word means to separate things from one another at their point of difference In order to distinguish them. Then you look at the Greek word translated discern, which again means to distinguish, to judge, to make distinctions. It can also be translated as interpret, as settle. Matthew 16, 2 through 3, Jesus answered them, when it is evening, he's talking to the religious leaders, and he's saying, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret that word interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times Acts 15:9 speaking about God the Gentiles and the Jews and he made no distinction between us and them he made no difference no point of separation between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith First, 1 Corinthians 6:5 I say this to your shame can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers So the Old Testament word for discernment, the Hebrew word for discernment, the Greek word for discernment had this inextricable idea of being able to recognize a distinction and separate the two. Discernment requires an ability to rightly divide. Division when it's immature, division when it's driven by personal preferences. You know, Joe came up here and he was in light-colored jeans. I really think leadership should only wear dark-colored jeans, so I'm going to go start my own church. That's inappropriate. That's not discernment. That's immature, self-centered division. Joe looks at me and he says, Sam started talking about how there are multiple ways to heaven and Jesus didn't really have to die on the cross. No, Leanna, we're taking the kids and we're leaving the church. We're finding a new church. That is discernment. That is biblical division. That is holy division. That is what the people were prepared to do back in Joshua 22. So put it all together as you look at this idea of, okay, the people were prepared to divide over the truth of holy worship. Because without truth, there can be no real unity and they're ready to acknowledge this. But before they do so, they're patient, they're graceful, they extend the conversation to make sure. What verse summarizes all of this as you look at Joshua 22 with this whole biblical picture of discernment, of division, of unity? 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I mean, that verse is Joshua 22. It's beautiful. It's in Joshua 22, you see potential problem. Here's the truth. The truth, God has commanded one altar. God has consecrated one altar. God has established what is holy and right worship. This is truth. Potential disagreement on what is truth. Okay, we're ready to divide. We are ready to let this divide us, to let this break our unity. But first, we're going to make sure we understand discernment. We're going to make sure that we can settle this rightly, that we we have full, skillful understanding and comprehension of this situation. Oh, there's not a division of truth? Then the people can rejoice and move forward together. I mean, Joshua 22 is this beautiful lesson of how to handle division and truth within the church and it's so encouraging to me because like i said at the start we've seen times where the people of israel has got it wrong but then you see where they get it right and and that's such a joy to me because i know at times i'm going to get it wrong and i know at times you guys are going to get it wrong and we're going to get it wrong corporately but because of god because of jesus the sanctifying redeeming work of jesus the transforming work of jesus we can get it right when we submit to his spirit when we submit to the holy spirit and it's beautiful to see the people of joshua play this out in real time and i think that is such a powerful lesson for us today this question of yeah division is not preferred right i mean jesus prayed for unity you see the galatians and the jew or the the galatians, you see the gentiles and the jews unified in christ so our, our heart should be for unity our heart should be against discord and dissension. We should not want to have divides. But if truth has been abandoned, then we need to be prepared to divide. And that's what I want us to think about this week as we go through. Right? I give you know, Sometimes I give five chapters, sometimes three chapters. This week there's seven chapters. It's still very manageable. But I want you to read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this week. Because these series of letters, first John especially, is really all about this is truth, this is untruth. You need to be able to recognize it, and you need to be willing to divide over it. And so read first, second and third John, and then just ask yourself two questions. I'm gonna be asking myself these questions. The elders are gonna be asking ourselves these questions, right? We're all gonna do this together. But as we consider this example set forth in Joshua twenty two, as we consider first, second and third John, first I want us to ask ourselves, are we people who desire peace? As we look at next week, there are multiple passages that talk about the importance of peace. In the, song, or in the Proverbs, it says, Better a peacemaker than a warrior who takes a city. So are we people who desire peace? Are we people who pursue peace? Are we people who offer peace? Because I think you see this in the response of the Israelites to this potentially divisive issue. Their first heart is for, hey, let's make sure so that if possible, we can move forward in unified peace of truth. So are we people like that in our own lives? The Bible also says, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do we follow this example from Joshua 22? But then do we follow the other example from verse 12 in Joshua 22? The people armed themselves and prepared themselves for war. And who were they preparing to go to war against? Their friends, who they had just spent seven years fighting with, and they're now ready to divide If those two and a half tribes have rejected and abandoned the truth of God's holiness. So then the second question that I want us to ask ourselves this week as we do this deep self-reflection is, does my heart really reflect discernment? Am I willing to divide from untruth? And before we answer that quickly, before I'm tempted, before I say I'm tempted to answer that, of course I'm ready to divide over truth. Of course I don't want anything to do with, with heresy, with untruth. Okay, that's the answer. That's the, that's the easy first-level answer. Then ask your follow-up question. The music I listen to, the podcasts I subscribe to, the teachers I watch on, on TV, on YouTube channels, the content that I am engaging with and supporting and endorsing with my behavior, does it reflect a willingness to divide over truth? To say, yeah, you know what? Your, your podcast might make me feel happy and fuzzy and warm inside. It might put a smile on my face to throw your radio station on as I'm getting ready in the morning, but you're not teaching truth. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to avoid that. I mean, what Scripture say? What, those verses that we looked at, Romans, avoid the people who cause divisions by teaching contrary to the doctrine that you've been given. Revelation 2, I have this against you, that you tolerate a false teacher. Jeremiah 50, an appalling and horrible thing has happened. You have teachers teaching heretically and the people love to have it so. So as we ask, are we willing to extend grace? Do we offer peace? Do we pursue peace? The flip side of that is, if it really is a division of truth, are we ready to stand and fight for God's word, for God's standards of holiness? We see this laid out in Joshua 22. It's beautiful. And so then the prayer ideas, if if you're growing in prayer and you're still like, okay, you know, maybe some ideas for prayer. Lord, sanctify me. Let's go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Sanctify me. In truth sanctify your church in truth make me someone who pursues peace who offers peace who desires peace but Lord equally make me someone who is prepared and willing to stand and fight for truth this is what we need this is what we need in our families it's what we need in our schools our homes our communities it's what we need in our churches we need churches who are willing to say, "Yeah, you're a nice person," and and look, make no mistake. When I'm talking about division, I'm not talking about like angry, petulant, you know, violence. What scripture says? Says, "Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, love the world, evangelize." I'm not talking about let's get ugly with this, let's get nasty with this, let's get antagonistic with this. But I'm talking about saying, "No, you know what? There's truth." and there's not truth, and I'm going to love you if you teach not truth. I'm going to pray for you if you teach not truth. We're going to be friends. I'm, I mean, like, I will treat you with all respect and dignity as Jesus treats the sinners, but I'm not going to unite with you. I'm not going to stand with you. I'm not going to endorse what you say just so that we can pretend we have unity. Joshua 22 is a wonderful picture of God's people confronting a problem and just handling it so well in a way that allows them to move forward unified. May we be a church that lives out Joshua 22. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are truth. We thank you that you you make truth known to us, that you open our eyes, you open our hearts to read your word, to receive your word, to hear from you, to, to listen, to learn, to grow. Lord, thank you that Jesus modeled for us a desire, a prayer for sanctification. We want to be continually transformed to look more like Jesus. Mold us and shape us, remake us. Your word also says, does the lump of clay have a right to say to the potter, why did you make me so? God, we don't have a right to question your remolding of us. So teach us to humbly submit to you. Teach us to love your truth, to desire your truth, to crave your truth. May we come to your word, may we come to your standards of holiness and conform to them, not expecting you to conform to us. We trust you with your church. As Ephesians said, grow us in truth so that we can grow together and be the body of Christ.